and welcome back. I'm Ben Shaw, host and producer of the Out the Gate podcast, your show for sailing and adventure on and around San Francisco Bay and occasionally a bit further afield. Okay, here's a quick quiz for you. Do you know where the Celsius and Fahrenheit scales overlap? I'll give you a hint. It's cold. Very cold. Negative 40 degrees is the magic number, and that was roughly the temperature Sally and Simon Kern had to prepare their boat for when they overwintered in Greenland. It's also a temperature at which gel cell batteries can freeze, as Sally and Simon found out the hard way. But the Kerns are no strangers to cold weather. The adventurous pair met planning an expedition to Everest, and they went from high-altitude climbing to high-latitude sailing, a transition that's actually not uncommon for people searching for adventure. They won awards from both the Cruising Club of America and the Ocean Cruising Club for their navigation and exploration of Greenland's Scoresby Sound, which is the largest fjord system in the world, and it's often icebound. And speaking of the Ocean Cruising Club, Simon is currently the Commodore of the OCC. Now, because of the frozen batteries, Sally and Simon recently transitioned to a lithium bank. In fact, the work was happening as they sat aboard their boat talking to me. So you might hear some banging in the background, but I don't think it's too distracting. So without further ado, let's jump into this adventure with Sally and Simon Curran. I'm uh, Simon Simon Curran. Yeah, I'm Sally Curran, and we're currently sitting on our boat uh, in the Chesapeake. Tell me a little <laughs> bit about the boat that you are sitting on. Okay, so the boat was built in 2006 in Sweden. So originally it was a, a Starlight 46 designed by Stephen Jones. Bowman Starlight, who commissioned the mould, unfortunately went bust, having made just three of them. So a Swedish yard acquired the mould called CI Yachts um, and uh, built uh, a few of our boats. So I think we are hole number two of three. <laughs> so it's a semi-custom fit out of what effectively was a Starlight 46. And the difference the Swedes made to it is they switched it to a deck saloon. Um, so we live in our saloon at the same level as our windows so that we can see where we go where we arrived, even if uh, it's cold and blowing outside, uh, which is rather fun. That is lovely. I was looking at some of the layout uh, of, of your boat online um, from the manufacturer, and it really does look like it's nice and bright there. You can live in the salon and yeah, really nice setup. Yep, yep. It's got its quirks as Ian, our lithium battery installer is finding out at the moment. <laughs> yes, I was going to ask about the, 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 the rattling in the background, but you guys are converting right now to lithium and that's that's happening as we speak, which is... As we as we speak, yeah. I think Ian's uh, uh, getting over time at the moment. He's... <laughs> All yeah. good. The boat was built in 2005, six, so that was in the days before lithium but um, we've taken the plunge to upgrade. So yeah, we're looking forward to having these much more efficient batteries. It's actually a forced upgrade, um, Ben, because uh, our AGM batteries, uh, which are now 10 years old, 
had got frozen, or at least two of them had got frozen up in the Arctic and uh, had completely split open, which is quite a sight. <laughs> Oof, yeah. Well, that brings up one of the things I definitely want to talk to you about, sailing in the Arctic. But before we get there, I'd love to hear from both of you how you got into sailing and how you ended up sitting on your sailboat in the Chesapeake. I'll let Sally go first, if I may. Okay. Well, I had done very, very little sailing before I met Simon, principally just a little bit of dinghy sailing with my school. And then I met Simon, who was just in the process of buying his own boat at the time. And somehow I got involved in the delivery from the south coast of the UK, where he bought the boat up to Scotland, where he'd managed to get a mooring to put the boat on. That's where my sailing started on Simon's boat, actually with his mate Richard teaching me things I needed to know. Um, because I was a real greenhorn at the time. And also I got green because I get seasick. So It has to be said that the main lesson Sally learned on that trip was always uh, when you're feeling sick, always uh, go to leeward, not to windward. And that was Ian's great, uh, Richard's greatest lesson to Sally. <laughs> the important lesson to learn for the p- person who's feeling sick and those others on the boat. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, and when was that? That was 1996, I think. Yeah, 1996. From that, Sally, even though you found yourself feeling green, what kept you engaged? Was it Simon saying, hey, let's go out sailing again? Or did you really find you enjoyed it? I didn't want other people to have fun that I wasn't able to have. I wanted to be there and do these things. And there was somebody who was taking their boat to different sorts of places. So. yeah, I wanted to be involved. So somehow I kept going. <laughs> and I tried every seasickness uh, remedy under the sun. Um, yeah, and uh, I think I found something that helps a lot now, but that took about 20 years to find. What, what, did you, what do you do since you're out and you're living on your sailboat? What, what do you find works for you? Tablet I found um, is called um, cyclozine, but you can only get it on prescription in the UK. I was prescribed it for a completely different condition, but then realized on the instructions, it said you could take it for travel sickness. So I thought I'd try it. And yeah, it definitely helps a lot. Interesting. Okay. Well, not necessarily accessible to everyone, but it's good a good one to know about. And Simon, how did you find your way to the water? Uh, dinghy sailing as a kid, I guess. We had a family mirror dinghy, as uh, a lot of kids of my generation did, um, which uh, got, got me hooked on the water, just uh, pottering around, a bit of racing, but not very seriously. Did a bit of crewing on fireballs um, for, a, for a friend and neighbour, um, which is a bit more competitive, but then went to work out in New Zealand in a hospital in Christchurch, uh, and I got plenty of spare time on my hands, so took a a big boat sailing course in Littleton Harbour in South Island, New Zealand, and then chartered um, most years after that until I only took the plunge and bought an old Sigma 38 that had been trashed around the cans in 1996, um, which is where Sally joined in. And was that for doing racing or just doing some more local cruising? Most of it was all cruising. So we sailed that boat over to Norway, sailed it around Ireland. Uh, We sailed it uh, to the Azores, and we sailed it um, across, the uh, across the Atlantic, 1999. 
and actually the boat was um, sold in the Azores uh, almost by accident and we found ourselves looking for a new boat in the early part of the uh, 21st century which is when we took the plunge and ordered this one. And Sally you mentioned that most of your sailing to date had been during vacations so you guys were both still working at that point when you were doing crossings and things how did that work for you? Yeah, we've only just retired, actually. Simon's last day at work was uh, New Year's Eve 2021. But given that most of our sailing was actually in northern latitudes where the seasons are very short, and we both had employers, well, Simon was self-employed, but his partners were very accommodating of him taking vacations that were a little bit longer than, than the normal vacation. And I'd also got a good contract with the company I was working with at the time. So we were able to take up to about six weeks off at a time. We take the boat so far and leave it and go back to work and then go and pick it up uh, and take it a bit further. So um, that's roughly how we managed to do a lot of our sailing to date. So was it during that time crossing the Atlantic that you ran across the Ocean Cruising Club? How did that relationship start? Through a mountaineering friend, actually. Um, really? Yeah, so before we got more into sailing, we were both quite into mountaineering. One of our mountaineering friends who'd done, I think, two or three Atlantic circuits, he kept on talking about the Ocean Cruising Club. We didn't really know anything about it. Um, and then we discovered he'd, uh, he'd nominated us for membership uh, when we completed the ARC. And we were delighted to join when we got back in 2001. I think we actually uh, paid our first subscription. Well, we'll get back to the OCC, but first, I understand that, that the two of you met while you were mountaineering, is that correct? Uh, you've been doing your homework, Ben. <laughs> yeah. You've been talking to your mum, haven't you? That's right. You guys were just spending some time with my parents, thanks to the OCC, and they were telling me stories, which was one of the reasons I really wanted to talk to you guys. <laughs> okay, maybe I'll come clean. So, uh, yeah, so 1994, I'd got a permit to climb Everest, uh, and we'd had it for about three or four years and we've been trying to raise money and the fees kept going up and up and up and we had to keep raising our sites to try and to try and find find the money to pay for an expedition because it's it's not a, a cheap mountain to climb even 25 or 26 27 years ago we hit upon this idea of organizing medical research with, with I, my friends my cohort of mountaineering friends were all, all, all physicians and some of us had an, an, an interest in the effects of altitude on human physiology. So we hit upon this idea of making it a, a mountain medicine expedition. And to get some meaningful science out of that, we needed some bodies to measure and to uh, assess their physiology as they climbed. Uh, and we thought that we could get a dual benefit from that is that we could, we could ask for paying volunteers we could put that against the cost of, of fixing the Everest ice for and buying the oxygen that we needed and paying for the permit. And it worked. Um, we, we attracted, I think, 75 um, uh, trekking members of our expedition and we had a permit for seven of us to climb Everest. And we split them up into small groups of 12, so they seldom ever met. Um, and we sent them off to climb other mountains in the Everest region. So they had a ball of a time. And that paid for an ascent of Everest, which was great fun. And towards the end of the preparatory period for that expedition, 
I'm a GP, a general practitioner, so I don't do handling money. Got large amounts of money going in and even bigger amounts of money going out, and we needed an accountant. And that's when Sally, Sally popped up, and uh, uh, she, she was looking for an opportunity to climb uh, uh, mountains in Nepal. She'd not been there before. She had a, accounting skills, and uh, it seemed like the perfect solution. Yeah, I was looking to find out what was going to come next. I'd done a ski season in, in the Alps in France and had received a letter from a friend who said he'd been invited to go on a, an expedition that was climbing Mount Everest and he was going to trek. And when I got back from my ski season, I thought, I wonder if there's any chance I could go on that trip too. And that was how I was put in touch with Simon. When I got in touch with Dave and said, is there any chance I can go? He immediately gave me Simon's telephone number. And yeah. I'd love to, to hear from you what you see as the similarities between mountain expeditions, climbing and sailing. I mean, obviously the use of lines and knots, but one seems to me that to, to require much more um, physical exertion than the other in most cases. But are there similarities? Was there something about sailing that attracted you having had experience doing mountaineering? I think it's all about adventure really, Ben. And it, it's quite common for, in Britain anyway, for, for mountaineers to turn to the sea um, uh, as they uh, get a bit older. Um, <laughs> not that we were old at the time, I guess we were in our 30s, but uh, um, we very, I, I very much liked to think that we could follow in the footsteps of, uh, of people like uh, Tillman and our good friend Bob Shepton, who has been an inspiration to us, who has been a mountaineer who's converted to uh, high latitude adventures and high latitude mountaineering um, at a level that we could never aspire to. Um, so it's that combination of adventure and making unlikely projects come true that was the challenge for me. Hey, what was your, what was your, what do you think, Sally? Well, I just like to be in the outdoors and where the action is. And actually, Ben, I'll let you into a secret. If I have to choose between going up a mountain or crossing an ocean, I'd always choose going up a mountain. <laughs> That's okay. My wife and I have that same dichotomy. She is a mountain person through and through. Her happy place is in the high Sierra here in California. And so... Yeah. So one of the reasons we live here is because we have access to the mountains and access to the ocean. So um, I'm hoping maybe as she matures, she will make that switch more to the ocean, but we'll see, maybe I'll make the switch more to the mountains. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. But you've continued with the sailing and you have, have your current boat. When did you bring her across the, to the States? So we were lucky enough to be able to buy it from new. So the boat was built on the island of Orust on the west coast of Sweden. Um, and we went- Oh, yes, to... that is where my boat was built as well. Oh, of course, Holberg Resse you have. Holberg Resse, yes. So literally a few miles from where, where your boat was built. It's amazing how many boats in, in his, throughout history were constructed on this small island. Absolutely, and they still are, um, which is perhaps even more amazing, but uh, they, they, they do build fine boats. Yeah. Um, so we spent what well, was supposed to be six months going backwards and forwards to 
I wouldn't say supervise because that's too grand a word, but to oversee the, the building of the boat. So we were a little bit worried about the finances of the yard at the time. And it turned out to be 18 months in build. So, uh, mm. and we had a fair amount of input into the, uh, the slightly quirky layout that our boat has. So we launched her in 2006. And in the first season, we brought her back to Wales, which is where we, uh, where, where we live in Britain and gave it, had a real good thrashing across the North Sea and quite strong uh, headwinds. Uh, found out where all the leaky points were and uh, put her under <laughs> a lot of stress. Kept her for the winter in Wales and then the following spring we sailed up to the Lofoten Islands in northern Norway, in Arctic Norway, and then down the back the west coast of Norway um, into the Oslo Fjord and then back to the yard that built her to sort out all the warranty work. So CR Yachts took her back in for the winter of 2007 uh, to uh, patch up all the bits that had failed in the first uh, 18 months, which was a really good way to do our sea trials. That's fantastic. You don't usually get that opportunity to try her out and weather like that and that over time like that and then get to patch her up. You mentioned you went from high altitude climbing to high latitude sailing at some point. What was that high latitude sailing where your batteries were so cold that they froze? So that wasn't so high latitude. That was um, that was uh, about two thirds of the way up the Norwegian coast, the Lofoten Islands. So about 200 miles north of the Arctic Circle. And actually, that's not so cold up there. That's um, still affected by the Gulf Stream. Um, so that was a, a glimpse into higher latitude stuff. But we, we, we charted Pelagic in 2006. Um, Pelagic is Skip Novak's boat, charter boat that he keeps down in, in South America, in, in, uh, in Chile. Um, and uh, we went with a skipper and the skipper's mate um, uh, across the Drake's Passage and had six weeks uh, sailing on the Antarctic Peninsula. So that was our real introduction to high latitude sailing uh, a few months before we took delivery of this boat so we weren't completely naive to uh, high latitude sailings when we when we pushed off a few years later to head to Iceland, Greenland and uh, uh, the Canadian Maritimes. Were there some things that you did Sally I'll ask you were there things that you did as you were since you were having this boat built in preparation of knowing that you wanted to go to those? Yeah islands? we are we told the boat builder that, that it was our intention to, to go to cold places and we wanted lots of lovely insulation in the boat, but we actually didn't push off for a high latitude crossing of the Atlantic until 2015. So between 2007 and 2015, we were sailing in the Baltic and in Scotland principally and preparing the boat for much longer voyages into remote places. As we got close to the time we came across various items of clothing or things like electric blankets and electric towel rails on the boat <laughs> which <laughs> made life much more comfortable when we were in these freezing remote places so um, yeah the boat was very well built for these high latitudes. What were some of the um, challenges that you did encounter there other than frozen batteries? Well, the frozen batteries probably happened when we overwintered the boat in northwest Greenland because we had to go back to work. So we had to prepare the boat for temperatures down to minus 40 degrees Celsius, which is about the same as minus 40 degrees Fahrenheit. But we had to prepare the boat for the winter while she was still in the water because 
the yard there that we use to lift the boat out normally services the halibut fishing fleet and they weren't going to haul us out until they'd finished their day job at the end of November and we couldn't mm. stick around until the end of November by which time the sea is freezing and so we had to winterize the boat in the water which mean, meant we had to leave bilge pumps etc on which means we couldn't take all the batteries out as we would have done and so I think a couple of the skeleton batteries that we left left on the boat to keep the bilge pumps going got drained down during the winter and uh, and froze the rest of the batteries actually survived fine they were disconnected and they were still had a good voltage nine months later when we got back to greenland eventually the boat was out of the water or was it in the water yeah the it was lifted it was lifted out um, at the end of november if i remember rightly <laughs> just as just as the, as the sea was starting to freeze up it was alone and uh, tied to a wreck actually um, <laughs> um, until until they they'd finished their servicing of the fleet and they hauled her out in november and we actually went back out in march when everything was just completely frozen solid um, and had a fantastic time in the arctic but the boat was completely entombed in ice. Uh, so we had to settle to go settle for going snowshoeing and dog sledging instead, which was great fun because we got to sledge and to snowshoe where we'd cruised the previous summer. Mm. Wow, that sounds amazing. Reminds me of uh, Alva Simon's wonderful book, uh, North to the Night, where he overwinters and he gets yeah. frozen exactly. in. And Bob Shepton had quite a story, I guess, getting... Uh, frozen in and then and having his his unfortunately Bob burned down yeah he? yes Bob, Bob's story is a good one it, it was Bob who actually put us in touch with this particular yard who uh, who who were able to lift us out there aren't many yacht lifting facilities in Greenland as you can imagine yeah wow wow and then so from from Greenland did you keep heading west that way or did you guys go back to Europe and then back across how what was your path so we left Scotland actually, or the boat left Scotland in 2015, and we sailed up to the Faroes, um, <laughs> back to work, left the boat in the Faroes for a few weeks, flew back out and took the boat on to Iceland. And we liked Iceland so much, we, we managed to overwinter for two winters in Iceland. Uh, and in the first summer, uh, so summer of 2016, we managed to do what Tillman never managed to do, which we we're very proud of. Tillman wanted to get into Scoresby Sound in northeast Greenland. Uh, he tried four times. Um, this would have been in the 1970s, 60s and 70s. And he lost two boats in the process, one of which was mischief. And when we arrived in Reykjavik to winter our boat in the water in Reykjavik, the guy that was going to keep an eye on it, a local Icelandic guy who runs the sailing club there, said, why don't you go to Scoresby Sand? And we'd never even contemplated that because we always regarded Scoresby Sand as, as beyond the reach of the plastic boat. Anyway, he managed to convince us. So um, the summer of 2016, we cruised from Iceland up into northeast Greenland, got into the Scoresby Sand fjord system and got right to the western end of the fjord system, which is incidentally the biggest fjord system in the world, 180 miles inland when you're when, when you're in the western reaches of Scoresby Sound. And we just enjoyed it so much because the mountain scenery there is fantastic. The cruising is spectacular. Um, the icebergs and the glaciers are spectacular. And it's probably the, the, the finest place we've ever visited by sea. Now, when you're enjoying that scenery, do you also go up into it? Uh, 
exploring your mountaineering routes and do some hiking. Uh, I guess we'd have loved to do that, Ben, but we were just so nervous about leaving the boat. The anchorages are really, really tenuous. It's mm. all the fjords are those u-shaped underwater as you as as they are above water so finding an area where you can actually get an anchor an anchor down that's protected by shallow areas so that you don't get icebergs drifting into you is quite quite difficult without a lot of crew there capable of looking after the boat when you're not on it it's too nerve-wracking to then go off and create another adventure in the mountains. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine that that that's tough when you're shorthanded there. What so that raises the question of um, anchor watches. I mean, do you get a good night's rest, or do you always uh, popping up looking for for icebergs coming your way, or making sure you're still holding? Well, you usually hear the icebergs because they come tapping on the hull. So, uh, so that's the that's the first first you know about them. I should say when we went to Scoresby Sand, we had two two friends on board, both of whom were mountaineering friends rather than sailing friends. But we didn't attempt to do any, any apart from local walks. We didn't attempt to do any more serious mountaineering. I, I mean, the other thing that you get in glaciated regions, of course, is catabatic winds, which are very unpredictable and come screaming. Uh, along um, and sometimes you you, you you know even the best laid anchor starts dropping so you really have to be very cautious about who's in charge of the boat if it is left and our, our mountain friends I think would have felt very nervous had they uh, had they been supervising our pride and joy when it got washed up in the far reaches of course we sound <laughs> yeah I know that that feeling well not from Anchorage is that exposed but just yes. where where the anchoring was safe. Um, we did do some uh, land-borne adventures, and that was, uh, I, I think, the, at its most fun in northwest Iceland, in the in, in the fjords up there, where there's very good anchoring. Uh, there's no sea ice, but we were sailing there in spring on two occasions and uh, managed to go ski mountaineering from our boat into the most wonderful national park, uh, super remote and. Uh, very enjoyable uh, ski mountaineering. Wow. And so you just put the skis on your back and, and hike up? Uh, no, ski mountaineering is is uh, a bit like your loose-heeled Telemark skis, um, except they are alpine skis where you can lock your heel down. So you, you, you put a skin uh, on the bottom of you glue a skin onto the bottom of the ski. Uh, you have your heel loose when you're climbing, so that gives you the friction against the snow. Uh, when you get to the top of the mountain, you remove the skin from the sole of the ski and you lock your heel down. And then it's like a regular pair of downhill mountaineering skis. Oh, how wonderful. Wow. Mm. Oh. We've still got the skis on board, but we're heading to Panama. So I'm not quite sure. <laughs> <laughs> We've got so much stuff on this. That's funny. So, so that gets me back to my question. What was your course? Did you continue coming west from, from Iceland and Greenland or did you? So from Scoresby Sand, we went back to Iceland to spend a second winter in Reykjavik. And then in the spring of 2017, we sailed back up to the northwest of Iceland again to go ski mountaineering again. And then we're joined by another couple of friends. And our intention then was to cruise the east coast of Greenland coming through Prince Christiansund and then hook up the west coast up as far as 68, 40 north or thereabouts. 2017 it was a really bad ice year on the east coast of Greenland. 
we managed to make a landfall quite a long way south at the southern limit of the sea ice in mid-July. Um, and we spent six or seven days there waiting for the ice to clear to get into Prince Christiansand, which I don't think in that year was open. I think we were the, best, the first boat going through Prince Christiansand from the east that year. And that was on August the 6th, I think, if I remember rightly. And what was really fun is uh, we were joined in a really remote fjord called Greidevik, about 20 miles north of Prince Christiansund on the east coast, uh, by another OCC boat, um, which, was, which we kind of said that we'll, we'll have a mini cruising company, but never really expected it to happen. So we spent <laughs> six idyllic days in the Greidevik fjord, exploring ashore and uh, waiting for the ice to clear so that we could get into Prince Christiansund. You can find OCC boats in the most remote places. They're a pretty intrepid bunch. When did you become the Commodore of the Ocean Cruising Club and what drew you to taking that role? I probably have to hand over to Sally because I, I we didn't do anything in the OCC for years after joining it, apart from just flick through the flying fish. And then for listeners, the flying fish is the newsletter that goes out of the Yeah, it's a bi bi-monthly booklet telling the story of members' adventures during the, the year before. So Sally had more time on her hands from uh, 2008 onwards and uh, the OCC was looking for a treasurer. Uh, I suggested being an accountant, she might like to become the treasurer of the OCC. So I'll hand over to her. Simon dug me in the ribs and said, um, when the newsletter came through with the Commod then Commodore saying that they were seeking a new treasurer because the current treasurer wanted to retire from the post, um, Simon said, you know, if you if you applied for this and you did it, he said, and these organisations rarely have many people willing to do these sorts of roles, he said, we'll start to meet lots of people. And then when we want to sail further afield, we'll have all these contacts. So with that, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So with that, I thought, hmm. So I did get in touch with the, with the then Commodore and became the treasurer in, I think, 2011, wasn't it? And as a result of that, then we went to our first meetings at the OCC and we'd probably been members for 10 years by then and uh, met some extraordinary people. So we met uh, Willie Kerr, uh, who is the guy who wrote the first cruising guides to Iceland, the Faroe Islands from Greenland uh, and picked his brains. I guess he was in his early 90s at that stage. And then I went to the AGM and was sitting on the high table because Sally was the treasurer next to all these dignitaries probably should say that to join the OCC you have to have done an ocean passage of a thousand miles so a common discussion point when OCC members meet is what was your qualifying passage and ours of course was the ark which is pretty mundane sitting next to this between this couple who are probably in their late 70s or perhaps the early 80s at that stage and it turned out that Rosemary hadn't got a starting point to her qualifying passage so I quizzed her a bit more and it turned out that uh, her husband Colin Moody who was a yacht designer in the 1950s and 60s had designed a gondola to sling under a hydrogen balloon he'd fabricated a hydrogen generator he had then got married and flown with his young bride Rosemary down to the Canary Islands and a friend of his uh, to fly this hydrogen balloon across the Atlantic to the Caribbean. And amazingly, amazingly, they got halfway before they were forced to ditch, whereupon they cut the, cut the balloon loose, 
raised the mast and sailed the gondola the rest of the distance. So her qualifying passage was from mid-Atlantic to the Caribbean, which I thought was rather cool. And that's, that's why I got involved in the OCC. In just unbelievable stories, which is exactly. why I've had so many guests from the OCC on this podcast, because they all have fantastic stories to tell. Now you're reaping the rewards of those friendships you're, you've made as you continue cruising around the world. Tell me a little bit about how those friendships have influenced your current cruising. Okay, so 2018, we, we relaunched in northwest Greenland and came down the Labrador coast to Newfoundland, wintered in Newfoundland, and started meeting up with the infrastructure that is the OCC eastern coast of the States, which is extraordinary. We've got this amazing network of port officers. We met the port officer for Lewisport, which is where we, where we overwintered. A fantastically helpful, charismatic guy. The port officer for St. John's, and they, they all welcome you with such hospitality and pride to be part of this amazing club that it's been absolutely extraordinary so much so as as you get further south um, of course the population gets more and more dense of OCC members so earlier this summer we were cruising through Maine and in the Chesapeake it's just been one continuous round of meals out tours around Washington goodness only knows what we're tied up on an OCC members dock at the moment and have been last week whilst our new batteries get fitted um, so it's an amazingly connected network of, of, of cruising characters it's been wonderful i certainly experienced that when i went cruising in 2000 uh 2001 um and this, this podcast is by, by no means intended to be an advertisement for the occ but there are just so many great stories that come out of that. And I think it epitomizes in so many ways, one of the things that I love about sailing and cruising, those connections that are made with people as you travel and have these adventures. Absolutely, it's the, it's the people that make these, make these things. Yeah, they're very much so. And it's not just about, the, we're members of the Cruising Club of America. And when we've met up with those guys too, it's been, it's been, been, been wonderful, but cru- yeah. cruising generally, yeah. Good folk to get to know. Tell me about where you're headed. You mentioned Panama. What is your plan from here? So um, we're going to keep the boat gently heading west. We've got no particular plan to be back in the UK with the boat at any time, any any time in the near future. So we're going to sail this season down the coast of Florida. Um, we're going to spend much of our winter in Cuba, I think, and we are going to uh, leave the boat in a marina in the Red Frog Marina on the Panama side of the Costa Rican border. And we're gonna take our bikes up into Costa Rica and explore Pan- uh, Costa Rica by bicycle with the boat safely tucked up in the Red Frog and go back to Europe for the summer. But uh, next season we'll be back out and either exploring a bit more of the Western Caribbean down to the San Blas Islands and maybe Colombia or going through into the Pacific. When we left the UK, our intention 2015 was to um, the in New Zealand, but uh, our slowness and of course COVID has impacted upon that. So we realistically will probably be in New Zealand in I don't know three or four years time. And at the moment, our plan is to rather than circumnavigate, um, is work our way up the Western Pacific Rim uh, and cruise in Japan, and come back to the USA via the Aleutian Islands and Alaska and British Columbia. 
So we hope to be back in the States in, I don't know, seven or eight years' time with a bit of luck. Wow. Our cruising plans, which are still taking shape, uh, also are, are, are a rough loop of the Pacific at some point. So that would be wonderful if it corresponded with wherever you guys were in the world. But that sounds like an amazing, amazing journey. As we know, cruising plans are written in the sand at low tide. So, but excited to, to follow your, your journey. Is there anything that we haven't touched on that you, either of you would like to mention? I guess there are a few activities that sort of involve the boat. And one of those I always think is when we, because we leave our boat and go back to the UK and then have to get back to it, we always have quite interesting journeys uh, to return to the boat. And obviously this year was no exception, having left the boat up in uh, Nova Scotia where it got stuck through COVID. We wanted to launch it this year in May, but Simon needed to be in Annapolis for the first OCC annual dinner in AGM, which was taking place at the beginning of April. And we then had to work out what we were going to do for the month of April because we didn't want to incur another transatlantic flight. And Simon suddenly started talking about, well, I know what we'll do. We'll fly out to Annapolis with our road bikes and we'll cycle up to Canada. And that will take up a, uh, a month. And then we'll be there at the right sort of time to launch the boat in May in Canada. Yeah, so back in March of this year, we flew into Washington DC with our bicycles, went to the annual dinner and AGM. And then on the 4th of April, we left Annapolis on our bikes and started cycling north. Towards the end of April, we arrived in Maine. Uh, we've been told that April actually should be fine for cycling sort of up through Maryland, etc. But probably would be quite chilly when we got to Maine. And actually, when we finally crossed the border into Canada, it was actually snowing. But Simon's already mentioned the great hospitality from OCC folk and also Cruising Club of America folk. And we were actually able to stay with a few folk on our way through Connecticut. And in Maine, we were royally hosted Bergendale Bruce. Yeah, met great people along the way and had a, had a super adventure by bicycle to get back to the boat. And then we put the bikes on the boat when we launched her up in um, Nova Scotia in early May. And then we sailed back down the, uh, the East Coast as far as Annapolis, where we hauled at the end of June. I love it. I love it. Is that one of the things that has inspired your upcoming bicycle trip into Costa Rica, as you mentioned? Um, yeah, we always do a bit of cycling. So, uh, yeah, no, that, that very much so. I, I, a cautionary note to add to that, we were warned not to launch the boat in May um, or the beginning of May in Nova Scotia because the season's too early and we thought, oh, nonsense, we sail Greenland, we can do that. So we did. It wasn't the cold that caught us out, it was the lobster pots that caught us out wow. because it's very much the lobster season. And in May, in, in, in Nova Scotia, um, the, they set their winter winter pots out in the deep water and they bring them in towards the end of the winter but they don't shorten the lines and the lines float on the surface and around Cape Sable on the south end of Nova Scotia the strong tides so you often get 50 meters of floating line on the surface I oh, think when we're around in Cape, Cape Sable we actually snagged three lobster pots in one day which is our record oh did you have to go over the side to cut them 
No, we didn't. We managed to get things untangled using boat hooks and, uh, and, and, and luck. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, it's, it's not a good not a good time of year to be sailing in the Cape Sable region in early May. So, uh, and it was cold too. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, Sally, Simon, thank you so much. Um, I really appreciated talking to you about your mountaineering and sailing and all the adventures and. Um, Hopefully either at an OCC meeting or out in a cove somewhere anchored up. We'll meet up in person and we can do it again. That'd be great, Ben. We've really enjoyed the chat and uh, we really enjoyed staying with your mum and dad in Washington, actually. You really appreciated that and uh, getting the guided tour of Washington was just wonderful. Well, yes, they said that they really enjoyed it too and was um, part of the impetus for me reaching out and saying, hey, you guys should come on and share some of your story because they said, they've got great stories. They'd be perfect for the podcast, so. Well, that's it for this week's show. I recorded this interview with Sally and Simon a while ago, and they've now spent the season in the Caribbean and are approaching Panama, where they're going to be leaving the boat and heading home for a bit. You can follow Sally and Simon at voyagesofshimshal.blogspot.com. You spell their boat name S-H-I-M-S-H-A-L. So that's voyagesofshimshal.blogspot.com. I'm your host, Ben Shaw. Thanks again for listening. You can reach me on Instagram at outthegatesailing.com. You can email me directly at outthegatesailing at gmail.com. Until next time, smooth sailing.